Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me again today. And a big thank you for everyone who came to see me and top author Jeffrey Wansall at the live show this week, which was a lot of fun. Well, except for the person who stormed out at half-time. Or maybe that was fun to them, who knows? But tickets are available for our event in Manchester on the 16th of April, and then back in London on the 20th of May. Just head to my website, uktruecrime.com, to buy them. And if you do, please let me know you are coming, so I can catch up with you at the event. And join me on Patreon for a chance to win our VIP ticket for the Manchester or London event with access backstage before and after the show and maybe even some mighty Leeds United chat over a cheeky warm glass of white wine. Just head to patreon.com forward slash UK true crime. In today's show we head to Liverpool and join police in their search for a missing person. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon but especially this week's new members of this exclusive group. That's Mia Martinson, Jean, Gary Marshall, Richard Williams, and a big welcome back to Maggie James. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by The Economist, the magazine for the kind of person who never stops asking questions and wants to know why the world is the way it is. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from world politics and business, to science, technology, arts, the environment, and of course, most importantly, crime. For example, this week in Crime News, there is a fascinating report from South Korea, going beyond the sanitised sex and glamour of their pop music industry, to the reality of offences allegedly being committed, involving drugs, tax evasion, and their provision of sexual services to potential investors. The Economist is a smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you've never stopped asking questions, get your free copy now. To claim your free print copy of The Economist, just text CRIME in capitals to 78070. That is text CRIME to 78070 to receive your free print copy of The Economist. Thank you. Let's really quickly set some context to today's story. The UK number one single was Example with Change the Way You Kiss Me. In the US, it was Adele with Rolling in the Deep, and her album 21 was topping the Australian album charts. This month saw Christchurch, New Zealand hit by another strong earthquake, measuring a magnitude of 6.3. Boston gangster Whitney Bulger was arrested outside an apartment in California after 16 years on the run. In the UK, household furnishings retailer Habitat went to administration and Levi Belfield, already three years into a life sentence for the murder of Marsha McDonnell and Emily Delagrange and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, 
was found guilty of murdering Amanda Dowler, the Surrey teenager who disappeared in March 2002 and whose remains were found in Hampshire six months later. Take a listen to the No Remorse podcast for really good coverage of this story. DCI Dave Brunskill of Merseyside Police was very concerned as he spoke to the press. 36-year-old Paul Mawson from Highton, which is around eight miles east of Liverpool in the northwest of England, had now been missing for two weeks, and the case had just been upgraded from a normal missing person inquiry, and was now sitting with his team of detectives from Merseyside Police's major incident team, and they only got involved with murders and the most serious of crimes. They had ideas about what had happened, but no evidence yet to prove it but they certainly feared that Paul could have been taken against his will and harmed, or worse. Paul Mawson was originally from Hoyton, but had now moved to nearby St Helens. He was described as white, around 5 foot 7 inches tall, of medium build, with a pale complexion, brown eyes and shaved black hair. He was last seen by his family, at around midday on June the 8th in Hoyton, driving a blue Renault Kangoo van with RJP property maintenance logos on the side. The van was found parked by the side of the A50 in Holmes Chapel near Crewe on June the 21st, but detectives knew it was abandoned sometime between 5pm on June the 8th and 8am the following morning. DCI Dave Brunskill was leading the search. He said, This is a Hoyton lad, very close with his family, and well-known in the local area who has suddenly just disappeared. The circumstances around his disappearance are really quite unusual, and that is what has led to the case coming to the major incident team. We need to consider what was going on in his life that may have caused him to disappear, or has he gone not of his own free will, and has some harm come to him? At the moment, we have nothing to say anyway. We are pursuing all three lines of inquiry, but we have nothing to say he has come to any harm. We need to hear from anyone who can tell us what has happened to him. In a further statement released through the police, Paul's mum, stepsister and girlfriend said, We are very worried and concerned as to the whereabouts of Paul, who is known to his friends as Birdie. This nickname was due to a little bit of white in his hair. All the detectives on the case didn't need to do much initial research as they all knew exactly who Paul Mawson was. Everyone in the local area did. He'd been jailed in 2006 for his part in the murder of student Anthony Walker in July 2005. You'll probably recall this case of Anthony Walker who was 18 years old and in his second year of A-levels when he was killed. He lived with his parents, two sisters, and one brother in Hoyton, and on the 29th of July 2005, Anthony spent his last evening alive, babysitting his nephew at his home with his girlfriend. At 11pm they left the house, along with Anthony's cousin, Marcus Binns, to get a bus. They then had the misfortune to come across another local man, Michael Barton, the younger brother of football manager, Joey, who bombarded Anthony and his cousin, who were black, with racist abuse. They ignored him and they continued to another bus stop, but Barton and his cousin Paul Taylor followed them in the car and then they attacked. 
Binns and Thompson managed to escape and ran away to get help, whilst Anthony Walker was fatally wounded when Taylor hit him in the head with an ice axe, which got lodged in his skull and left him brain dead. He was taken to Whiston Hospital and then to the Walton Centre, where he died at 5.25am. Anthony Walker was just 18 years old. The murdering cowards who had done this needed to get away. And Paul Mawson, who was 25 at the time, was one of the people they called and he met them shortly afterwards at a local boozer, giving them his Vauxhall Vectra so they could make their escape to Amsterdam. Paul Mawson was later sentenced to 11 months in prison after the jury accepted his story that he was unaware that his friends had killed someone. He believed they'd just been involved in a, in a fight outside a pub. And incidentally, the two murderers did come back to the UK and are now serving life in the slammer, with a sentencing judge saying that Anthony Walker was killed for no other reason than the colour of his skin. So back to our story. Was the disappearance of Paul Mawson related to his involvement in the Anthony Walker murder? Or was it something else? Police started to look in more detail at Paul's life. Since he was last seen, there had been no use of his bank account or mobile phone. Paul was a car dealer, but he was even described by his mum as a lovable rogue, and detectives believed he was probably involved in more shady elements, probably around drugs. But whatever it was he was involved in, the key was to try to find him as soon as possible, so that if he was being held somewhere, they could bring him back to his family before this potentially became a murder investigation. But due to Paul Mawson's background, it was difficult to get people close to him to talk. For example, although his brother, Dale Conway, had actually approached police two days after his disappearance, he'd been very evasive with the information he had shared. He told police that his brother was living at the family home in Hoyton, rather than in St Helens with his girlfriend, Faye. In fact, he went a step further and told police that his brother didn't have a girlfriend, although she was the last person to see him on the day he disappeared. Detectives suspected that this was because he didn't want to tell the police anything, which may have led them searching Paul's home address, as then he'd had a chance of clearing it of anything which ought to be cleared. PC Amelia Barr was the officer called out to the Mawson family home in Hoyton to speak to Dale Conway. She later told colleagues of the encounter. He seemed very vague. I asked where his passport was and he did not know. I asked who he banked with and he didn't know that. I asked whether he had a girlfriend. He said that Paul didn't socialise or go out much. He could not give me any information about friends or acquaintances. I asked to see his bedroom and it was like a showroom, just a bed and TV. I did not think he was being very accommodating at all. Paul's brother explained it away, as it not being for him to talk about his brother's business. The best the police had to go on was the abandoned van that Paul had been driving on the day of his disappearance. Detectives pushed this hard in the media, and people soon came forward with a number of sightings, with all the evidence pushing detectives to one man, 33-year-old Sean Callahan. He was seen driving the van. A taxi driver came forward 
to say that he had been paid a fare of £70, plus a £20 tip, to take a man resembling Callahan back to a pub in Hoyton, and most importantly, Callahan's DNA was found in the van. But despite a painstaking forensic search, there was no sign of blood matching Paul Mawson in the van. So if he had come to harm, which detectives increasingly believed he had, then it hadn't been in the van. Once word got around that Callahan had been arrested, other people came forward to reveal that he had spoken to them about his involvement in the disappearance of Paul Mawson. And based on this information, detectives now quickly realised that they were certainly investigating a murder and moved quickly to bring two other men into custody. These men were Jay Brearley, aged 59, and John Burns, aged 33. Both were soon charged with the murder of Paul Mawson, with 33-year-old Sean Callahan also facing a charge of perverting the course of justice, along with murder. Detectives were certain they had the right men in custody, but during the course of the questioning, it was hard to be absolutely clear what had happened, as all the men changed their stories and repeatedly lied. But detectives did manage to piece together what had probably happened. And starting with motive, they discovered that Paul had been murdered for money and was probably killed very soon after he went missing. Paul Mawson had invested £50,000 in John Burns' firm, iSecurity. But the firm was in trouble, and Brearley was also drowning in debt with his home in danger of repossession. In fact, on the day that Paul Mawson was killed, Brearley received a formal repossession order for his home. Both of these men, Brearley and Burns, they needed money and they needed it quickly. They were friends, and Paul's girlfriend, Faye, told detectives that Paul told her he'd been growing cannabis with Burns and Brearley at Brearley's home. But the financial investment, the 50000 he'd made into Burns' company, and the cannabis farm weren't working for Paul, who wasn't getting any money from the deal. In April, just before he was killed, he told Faye that he was going to tell Burns that he wanted his investment back. Two days before he vanished, he found that Burns had still not paid money into his account. But unbeknown to Paul, at the time Burns' business was failing badly and he'd been losing thousands on online gambling and at the casino as he tried in vain to recoup his losses. When arrested, the older man, Brearley, initially denied knowing Paul Mawson. But the evidence from Callahan, along with forensic evidence at his home, where spots of Paul Mawson's blood were found on furniture, consistent with wet blood being struck by a hammer, caused Brearley to change his story. He eventually admitted arguing with him after he claimed that he had prevented Paul using his house as a cannabis factory. Brearley told police he'd been renting his home out and found that Paul Mawson was cultivating cannabis in it. When Paul turned up at his house on the day of his disappearance, tempers were quickly frayed and it led to violence as they argued about rent arrears and Brearley wanting the cannabis farm out of his home. Brearley claimed that Paul threatened to disfigure his wife before attacking him with a large pair of scissors and that he was fighting for his life against a vicious opponent. He insisted to detectives that he was acting in self-defence and used any weapons that were nearby including a bar stool and a hammer. And it was this fight 
that led to Paul's death. When Paul was dead, Brilly described how a chisel was protruding from Paul's chest and he put pot plants onto his head and feet before binding the body with nylon rope. He then used bamboo canes to create a frame and to give the package a cylindrical shape. Brilly then said that acting alone he put the body into a borrowed van and went with a friend to the Runcorn Bridge, telling the friend that the large papers he was throwing into the Manchester Ship Canal were in fact tax papers. On the other side of the bridge they parked and the two men carried the body on a homemade stretcher to the water's edge. Together they rolled the body down a steep embankment, weighted down with three concrete breeze blocks and pushed it into the water. When questioned about the events of the day, Sean Callahan maintained that by the time he arrived at Prudy's home, Paul was already dead. Callahan said that when he arrived at the scene, Brealey was swinging a lump hammer in the direction of Paul's lifeless body. Callahan said he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was shocked, terrified, and he was paid to drive away Paul's van to make it appear that he'd voluntarily disappeared. But detectives weren't convinced by Callahan's account of events. Callahan didn't seem to be able to stop talking about what had happened, and later told several people that when he got to the house he heard screams because a lad who worked for John Burns called Birdie was getting battered. He told them how he went into a room and saw a lad tied up and blood everywhere. Brealey told him to hit the lad with a hammer because both Brealey and Burns had done that and they didn't want Scott Callahan to grasp them up. He said he then ran out, jumped in Paul Mawson's van, drove to Crewe and dumped the van somewhere. He told a girlfriend that he'd seen Paul Mawson lying on plastic with his head smashed in and Burns repeatedly shoving his face in a water bucket. Detectives felt that Scott Callahan told some, but certainly not all of the truth. If, as he had claimed, he'd been paid £2,000 and promised a further 10000 then he must have performed a valuable service for whoever was giving him the money. They strongly suspected that just ditching the van wasn't sufficient for this payment and that he must too have taken part in the murder of Paul Mawson. On the day that Paul went missing the 8th of June, Paul's girlfriend found that a small safe in the bedroom of the house she shared with Paul was missing. Detectives were certain that Burns, Brealey and Callahan had taken it after killing Paul. The evidence was pretty clear. All three came into significant sums of money at the time Paul Mawson died, with Burns gambling a further 3700 at a Liverpool casino and Brealey trying to pay off loans while Paul's dead body was lying in his house. With this reckless spending of money, the ill-thought-out dumping of the van and Callahan's inability to stop blurting out what had happened, it is clear that the three men were amateurs. But although they must have strongly thought they were all going to prison for a long time, they still didn't have the decency to let the family know where Paul Mawson's body was. The family pleaded for the men to reveal where Paul's body was so they could properly lay him to rest. When Ray Brady admitted killing Paul Mawson and dumping his body in the Manchester Ship Canal, it was hoped that by travelling to the scene with police, he would be able to help recover the body that he was unable to identify the specific spot and investigators quickly formed the opinion he was spinning them more lies. 
to cover up what had really happened. Security was tight at the trial, which took place at Liverpool Crown Court. Jay Brearley and John Burns were found guilty of murder. Brearley was told he must serve at least 25 years and Burns 30 years in prison. The third man, Scott Callaghan, was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of perverting the course of justice and sentenced to eight years in prison. Detective Superintendent Dave Brunskill said the investigation into this kidnap and murder was one of the most complex he'd been involved in. He said, The murder of Paul was a tragedy for his family and girlfriend. He went through the agony of not knowing for several months how and why he had disappeared. They've had to come to terms with his death while not having a body to lay to rest, which has made it particularly difficult for them. No one ever deserves to be harmed or killed, but this case has shown the lengths that ruthless men like Burns and Brealey are prepared to go to to protect their criminal enterprises. I would like to take this opportunity to appeal once again to anyone out there who may know where Paul's body is. I believe that someone in the circles that Paul, John Burns and Ray Brealey moved in must know something. It is a devastating secret to keep and doing so is having a devastating effect on Paul's loved ones. I would urge you to do the right thing and give us the information we need to bring them the closure that they need. Fast forward to 2015 and Paul's body still had not been recovered. In fact, it still hasn't. His mum Joan, speaking to the Liverpool Echo newspaper, said It's now four years since Paul was murdered and still the men who did this have not given us closure as to where Paul is. How can they not disclose where he is? Do they get a kick from keeping this information? I can't see the sense of not telling the police or my family what they have done. What do they hope to achieve? How can they live with themselves, knowing they are holding this information and condone the agony to a mother and her family who did nothing to these men? All we want is closure. Joan has a plaque in the garden dedicated to her son because without a dead body, she has no grave to visit. She describes Paul as a lovable rogue. She said, he'd do anything for anyone. We're all missing him and can't believe he's gone. I still expect him to walk through the door. So what you make of what we've heard today? I know that some will feel strongly that if you mix in these criminal circles, then you deserve whatever you get. And I do understand that position, as Paul Mawson, from what we've heard, isn't someone who maybe naturally leads us to feel sympathy. But I do feel for his mum, his friends and his family who were so devastated by events and still don't know where his body lies. Paul's mum, Jean, has campaigned with other families in the same position to push for a change in the law so that murderers who don't reveal where their victims are will not be eligible for parole. It makes sense to me, don't you think? And what about the two men responsible for his murder? Desperate, violent men, brutal men, both on the brink of financial ruin. And then there's Sean Callahan, the man who couldn't stop talking. What a trio. And ultimately, what another waste of life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of true crime, please join us at the Facebook group. 
and for the chance to win a VIP ticket to the live shows and to access 26 full-length bonus episodes plus other exclusive content, please do head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that is all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, take it easy and stay classy. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.